Okay, well, here we are. Ah, today is April the 5th, 2020. I have to apologize because my voice is a little bit diminished today. I'll be a little careful. Uh, so April 5th, 2020, lecture discussion number 97. So uh, right off the bat, there's all kinds of things going on. Let me just say quickly that I don't think there's any controversy. The United States is in a difficulty with regard to this uh, world disease, this COVID-19, coronavirus, Wuhan virus, whatever the appropriate nomenclature is. And the European Union, if you've been reading the news reports, that union is unstable right now. The national interests, uh, the language barrier, uh, the borders now are starting to reestablish themselves. Domestic politics in European and the European Union is having priority over the European Union uh, operating as one. Uh, again, uh, China is uh, based on the cremations that they're seeing coming out of China. I, I assume that's a, a satellite uh, observational methodology. But China has, is burning 3,500 people a day now. And I, I don't know if you paid attention, but there is an M, there's a pressure now from the far left to create a cashless environment because they're saying cash is a carrier or a vehicle for the coronavirus. And obviously, again, the United States is destabilizing it, especially on the East Coast. So here's what we have right now. We have the number one economy in the world, the United States. We have the number two economy in the world, the Chinese, and we have the number three, the European Union, all in an unstable condition. And now we see uh, a, a operational, uh, it, within the media, we see a consensus that a, that a cashless society. John the Revelator predicted that almost 2,000 years ago, 1950 or 25 years ago. On the uh, so pay attention if and you know I'm, I'm sure everyone knows and I'm not saying anything that anybody doesn't know if the United States prints as much money two trillion dollars as they're saying they're going to do now it's no longer printed it's just digitalized they just say they have it based on a computer keystroke if they put that kind of income into the country that's going to create an inflationary uh, impulse or an inflationary pressure and so. This is economic. The, the long-lasting issue here may be economic. Of course, you can't uh, discount the fact that this particular uh, coronavirus might have as many phases to it as the influenza of 1918 to 1920, in which case that would be three. Uh, that would be obviously devastating. Now, on the bright side, we have uh, hydroxychloroquine, as if, I can barely say, as this romycin, that combination, that cocktail of drugs is showing great promise. In fact, uh, they're taking people off of intubation and mechanical um, breathing systems, mechanical intuba intubation. So uh, the, the infectious disease specialists, and the, of course, this started out of France as a French cohort where they were very successful with this combination. So that's validating that uh, particular cohort. So that is good, but we will see. And as you know, as I said a few weeks ago, very many weeks ago, I said whenever there's this kind of pressure on the medical facilities and the medical structure, especially on the research side, and vast amounts of money are thrown, then tremendous amounts of, of uh, extra, if you will, uh, tremendous amounts of additional therapies uh, rise up. So I want to pay attention to that. Uh, we know that there are, I have to take my glasses off here to read my own writing. We know that there are antibodies, uh, antibody neutralization uh, processes where they construct essentially an antibody and they send it after this particular virus. Uh, antibodies are naturally occurring in our own body, uh, as, you, as everyone knows, and they attack path pathogens. Um, but th this is a a more sophisticated system with regard to that and the research behind it is amazing as is the convalescent plasma that we talked about a few weeks ago they're beginning to recognize that uh, 
blood to blood. The blood has a, especially the plasma, you'll have to look up yourselves on the difference between plasma and, and blood cells. I don't have time to do it. This is the introduction to the lecture. It's already lasted 10 minutes. Okay, not, it's not that many. Once again, I want to thank the three people that have come today, all wearing masks. Some of you are far more attractive than others now. It's really impressive. But the key to this is, uh, we spoke about it when we saw what happened when, when the Chinese government, the communist government, they shut down incredibly large cities, 20 million people in a city, uh, stopped everything because they recognized the pre-symptomatic element here, that you could be pre-symptomatic or asymptomatic uh, for as much as 21 days, maybe 30 days. And the aerosolized element of this virus means that it will travel at minimum 30 feet and it'll uh, be very difficult to deal with so watch the the innate immune system and the adaptive immune system the monochronic I'm sorry monoclonal antibody uh, in, uh, what's what's occurring the results in those kinds of tests that is incredible because whenever you get into the neuroimmune system and the peripheral immune system, the blood-brain barrier is what I'm speaking of, the cero, or the cerebral spinal fluid barrier. Whenever you're dealing with those kinds of characteristics, that's the electrical system. And, you know, I'm fascinated by that, and I'll get into that in a minute. But uh, any research that brings those kinds of things out is profound. Those are where the great mysteries uh, of of the body are, and as man develops capability there, then we can expect uh, progress, and progress is not necessarily good. So that's the introduction. I'm looking at the collapse of these economies, the potential collapse, the inflationary pressure, the incredible amount of research and development that's occurring, especially, uh, again, in the adaptive immune system and the innate immune systems of the human body. These are extraordinary times that we live in. So watch, therefore. Okay, April the 5th, 2020. Again, sorry about the voice. I hope I'm making it. Lecture discussion number 97 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes. And if there's ever been a Sunday when my material had accumulated uh, beyond my ability to disseminate it, today is such a Sunday. I, the conveyance of information... In times like this, is uh, frankly, it's incapacitating. It's uh, paralyzing for me. And where do I begin? Uh, where does one begin in, a, in this kind of situation? Where, where, where does one end? What do I put in the lecture? What do I, what, what do I remove out? It, it's a very difficult challenge for me today and uh, hopefully next week. To speak about that, uh, we're hoping that we're operational on First Fruits. That would make the most sense. It's a fantastic day to be operating. But if Alaska goes into a crisis acceleration, if the velocity of the of the uh, COVID-19 confirmed cases and deaths begins to accelerate, and we end up in a New York type of condition, or in Italy or in Spain, again, those are two more countries in the European Union that are collapsing economically. If Japan goes, uh, my goodness. What will happen to this world if it all fails economically for any length of time? Consider that and then compare it to what John the Revelator says about the revelation of Jesus Christ in the tribulation, the book of Revelation. Years ago, I was faced with this dilemma when I first began. And so I had all this information. It was relatively new uh, to most people at the time. And I didn't know what to do with all of it, so I just merely uh, decided to drone on and on and on and on. And at that time, I'd come out of high school, and uh, the classes in the particular school I was involved in were two hours. At the minimum, it was 90 minutes. We have a few people that went to Bartlett High School, and they remember 90 minutes. And so I was used to being boring for an extraordinary period of time. And, uh, and I was tempted to do that this week. As tempting as that was, I recognized immediately the impracticability. Over the years, I've, I've recognized that most people cannot listen to me for that duration of time. Not even young people. 
So I've had to make some choices as to what's included and what remains to be included uh, in the weeks to come. Hopefully those weeks are going to be something we can do. And that means that the self-propagation of magnetic fields, the permittivity of uh, free space to the formation of electrical fields, that's called vacuum permittivity. And the permeability, that's the resistance of a material to a formation of magnetic fields. I'm going to have to set that aside for today. You can hear what's left of the audience just jump up and down. We've only had three people here. Yeah. We have three people here today counting, no, not counting me, and four of them have already left. So uh, that's what we're up against. So I'm going to have to wait on that, and I really did not want to because it's fantastically interesting in my view. That's Maxwell's equation, that's Gauss, that's Faraday, that's Ampere, that's the relationships of magnetic fields and electrical fields. And again, it's astonishing. Electrical physics is wonderful. It's enthralling, some would say. Do you know, to give you an example, that there is no such thing as a magnetic monopole? Why is that? Why isn't there no such thing as a magnetic monopole? Why are magnets dualistic? Why is there a south and a north pole? And you can cut the magnet as many pieces as you want. There will still be a south and a north pole, no matter what, how many pieces you form out of a magnet. They just automatically become dualistic. Well, anything that is automatically dualistic is fascinating to me, obviously, because I see the hand of the Creator in this kind of thing very easily. So again, why is it that there is no magnetic monopoles? Why is it that magnetic monopoles cannot exist? What is the evolutionary theory? It's a monistic theory and it's contradicted by electrical magnetism. Electrical charges, I know I'm getting into it even though I promised I wouldn't. Whenever there is a moving electrical current, you have the generation of magnetic fields. That's the basis for power generation. That's locomotives, for example. My level of expertise when I was a young man was in locomotive theory. Actual locomotives, trains, as you know. And now I know better than I think most people that the human heart, the heart of human beings, of course, and animals, it moves electrical currents, and I can track them. I have devices. I track the electrical currents of my heart. I'm interested in it, and I'm also worried about it. So every time, again, that you have electrical currents moving, they're going to generate uh, magnetic fields. So that means that my heart and brain, being electrical devices, are generating magnetic fields. We are electrical. Our bodies are electrified. How did that happen? What is gravity? I know, I know, everyone, by everyone, I mean the vast internet audience. You can hear the, uh, you can hear the clicks of the computers turning off right here. Um, because we only have an internet audience and three people. Once again, the auditorium's empty. And I watched myself last week. I said, man, this guy cannot do this. He is really awful. Uh, so I'm trying to be a little bit more animated this week. So, But I, I realize that everyone is fascinated by electrical fields and magnetic fields and gravitational fields, as they should be. And if I can only do it justice, that's half a joke, but not really, because the electrical fields, magnetic field interaction, the gravitational field, they are evidences of the creator. They are incredible evidences. But we're not going to do that today. I just, I just want to prepare you. you get, I know a lot of you guys out there just get going really good on it, and I want to give you an idea where I'm headed uh, for Easter, which is really first fruit, as you know. The previous lecture, November 90, I'm sorry, number 96, I said November, my goodness, can't read my writing. Number 96, March the 22nd, I emphasized the taking of the scroll by the book, if you will, the taking of the scroll in the book by the lamb. Not any lamb. The, whoops. Let's see. What can I do about that? That might be better. The lamb. The singular lamb. He takes the book. 
This act is in Revelation 5-7, and that's the fulfillment to the Lord's Prayer. I know, I hope all of you actually do what Christ said. Pray this, pray in this manner. When you pray, pray, pray in this manner. Sorry, I'm stumbling over my words. That's the fulfillment of Matthew 6, 9 through 13. The petition, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That is Revelation 5, 7. I said that a couple of weeks ago. I just wanted to repeat it because I know that not everybody got to got found that particular lecture. The lamb is taking the kingdom. The kingdom of Matthew 6 is the kingdom that is being taken by the lamb in Revelation 5, 7. And he receives the document. So this is a judicial, this is a legal procedure that's happening. So God sees the necessity of making this a judicial event. And that immediately raises the obvious question, why is he doing this? Why does he need to do it? He needs to do it because he's omniscient, right? Omniscience will will declare intent. But why? We need to know why is this a judicial process. And the reason is, is given quickly in Revelation 5.8. So I got Revelation 5.7. Now I got Revelation 5.8. There are four living creatures and 24 elders there. And 24 elders and four living creatures. And I identified those living creatures last week. That, and those are cherubim. So those are high-ranking angels. And they're not really called angels, they're called living creatures. Look at them in Ezekiel. Uh, you can figure out what they are like. But again, this is, and each one of these, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, each having a harp and golden bowls full of prayers of the saints. And they sing a new song. When he takes the scroll, they have harps, they have golden bowls, and they, uh, and they sing a new song. What's he implied by the new song? Is there an old song? What's the difference between the new song and the old song? I'm moving my head like this, trying to pretend there are people there. There aren't. I'm just being weird. They are, it said, it's full of the prayers of the saints. So now you have another question, don't you? What are the prayers, the particular prayers of these saints? Who are these saints and what are they praying for? What was prayed for? And the song reveals that the prayers, they are the prayers of redemption by the blood of the Lamb. So they're in front of the Lamb while he is taking the book that gives him the kingdom. He's taking his kingdom. It doesn't give him the kingdom. He's taking the kingdom. That means he's taking it from somebody. Who's he taking it from? Why does he need to take it back? What's he intend to do with it when he takes it back? And now I have all of these saints. I have 24 elders representing all of these saints. And they all have prayers. And the prayers are the redemption by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ. So that makes them prayers of salvation. So these are saved people here. Next obvious question. When did they get saved? How did they get there? Who are they? The taking of the scroll book is directly connected to the 24 elders and the four living creatures who fall down and sing. At Revelation 4, 9 through 11, the living creatures and the 24 elders give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne. Him who created all things. They identify him as the creator of all things. Colossians 1, 15, 17. John 1, 3 through 4. John 8, 12. Genesis 1, 1. So the taking of the scroll and the singing of the song launch then Revelation 6. So that's what launches Revelation 6. And that's what we discussed back in the 22nd of March. And that's the four horses and their riders. The four horsemen, if you will, of Revelation 6. Notice how I divide them into horses and riders. I'm doing that on purpose. And we rush through that on March 22nd. Um, I'm going to rush through it again, sort of, asking the central question. The central question to Revelation 6 is how long? How long? Or if you will, when? Yeah. If you want to even go further, what's the sequence, the chronology? Is there a sequential element to the horses and the riders? Do they come in order?
So, from what that essentially is, if you remember from that, if you've watched that already, that's Matthew 24, 4 through 8, Mark 13, 5 through 8, and Luke 21, 9. That is where Christ said, there's a beginning to the end. And I'm asking, how long is the beginning to the end? That's what I asked back then, so we're going to address that a little bit more today. Those three passages, those are statements that the Passover lamb himself, when I say the, it is the lamb and it is the Passover lamb. There's just one. And he is both. So we can glean what the signs are because he tells us the Passover himself made, uh, made statements about the end of the beginning. It's the end of the beginning of the end of the Gentiles. Does that make sense to anybody but me? Three people are pretending that it did. That's twice as many as usual. I mean, it's amazing. And he said, nation against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And that is worldwide war. Not war. World war. He also said that there would be great earthquakes. And you should be asking questions. I said last week that there were no, there was never a world war in the history of the man post flood until 1914. So that's the first one and the only one, 1914 and 1945. Will there be more? Yes, there will. When will they happen? They will happen before the tribulation and in the tribulation. We will have world war. So one of the signs is world war because the tribulation is filled with world war. So, great earthquakes. What's a great earthquake? We call the 1964 earthquake that I witnessed personally the great Alaska earthquake. Is it really the great Alaska earthquake? Famine and disease. We've always had famine and disease, as I pointed out. What is famine and disease? What's the sign? What differentiates the earthquake and famine and disease from other famines and diseases and other earthquakes? We have fearful sights and great signs from heaven. Have we ever had fearful sights and great signs from heaven? The answer is no. It's never happened. But he says that is the beginning of the end of the age of the Gentiles. Those four things. So far again, mankind has witnessed the beginning of the end in 1914. That is world war. And mankind has witnessed world disease. And we have it again as I'm speaking. World disease. Note world. Ask if that's consistent. Note the emphasis on world. I had a friend who used to say emphasis. And I, I ended up thinking that was a really good idea. Because then people would say, you're saying it wrong. And I could argue with them. And I like the sound of emphasis. It seems kind of foreign to... And, uh, anyway, what am I doing? There has been extensive famine, but not yet world famine. I've le- I listed all the famines, the whole of the more especially those that were caused by genocide. That's one of them. We had the potato famine of the Irish. We have had famine, but we have not had world famine. So I am saying to you, the key to all of this is world. The signs of the end of the beginning of the end of the Gentile is the world. The great signs from heaven, that's instability. Fearful sights and great signs, there's instability in the world. Physical instability is what I mean. Great earthquakes, fearful signs, and great signs, or fearful sights and great signs. Uh, How does God define great earthquakes? I hope I gave you the clue to this. All are all of these worldwide events. So this, if if so, if I am right, then this is going to be a worldwide earthquake. That's how He will define great earthquake. The whole world. You see, the sign is for the whole world, right? So why would he just locate it in, say, 
Yellowstone National Park. He would do it all at once, everywhere. Has he done it before? Yes, he has. Has there been a worldwide earthquake before? Yes, there have been. Do we know it? No, because there weren't people all over the world to, to validate it. Now there are. I'm looking at the world, uh, how many countries of the 201, I believe, is what the, what the uh, announced number is with regard to the country. Every country has this coronavirus in it. It's, they were about 185 the last time I looked, but I know they're all there. And as you know, there are some countries that will not correctly identify their condition. So, we, this is going to be world. And now, immediately when I say we have a worldwide event, where do you go in the Bible? You can't answer me because you're all covered in masks. But obviously the worldwide event is uh, Genesis 7, 17 through 20. That is the great flood of the, the, that is the Noadic flood. That was a worldwide event, was it not? That was a sign to somebody. Well, obviously the, the humanity didn't need the sign. So who was watching that flood? Had there been a flood before? Well, that's Genesis 1, 2, right? So think about all of this. There's a worldwide economy predicted by John in 1925 years ago. We have worldwide pandemics. We have worldwide war. We're going to, if I'm correct, then we're going to have worldwide earthquakes. And so those are, those are things for us. And now the question again, the duration of time, the span. How long is the beginning of the end? How does the beginning of the end and the four horses and riders entangle or intertwine? Do they overlap? In other words, when I have these four horsemen, I can't, do they come in a sequential order that is defined? Or are they actually all over each other? Some are here, some are here, then over a duration of time. How long is the beginning of the end? That was the question of a couple of weeks ago. And to answer these questions and other questions... Uh, to answer them, I have to do something. I can't answer them as easy as you might think. People are always upset at me because I don't seem to answer questions. See? But, see? They mock, they mock me. And they're wise to do so. But to answer this... It's going to require that we return to the first Adam and the feast days of the Lord. That's how you do it. Now, as you know, Passover is on Wednesday, on the 8th of April. It's on Wednesday. That's amazing. That's the exact pattern of the crucifixion of Christ. When he was crucified, he was crucified on Wednesday. That's Passover, Passage. It's a high Sabbath. So let me just kind of do this. But today is Sunday the what? The 5th. Wednesday the 8th. And then Thursday the 9th. And Friday and Saturday. I guess I can put them all in here. Okay. And then I have Sunday. Now the Sabbaths in here are this one. Passover, this one unleavened bread, this one first fruits, and this is the weekly Sabbath. And critical to know that. That is how he set it up. So, Passover is on Wednesday. Again, it's the exact pattern of the crucifixion week. Crucifixion on, on Passover, high Sabbath, burial and atonement on unleavened bread, also high Sabbath. You know, this is uh, Pesach and this is Hag HaMatzah. That's the sign of Jonah right here. Right here is the sign of Jonah. I'm sorry, I get it wrong. Right here is the sign of Jonah. God knows how to count. He's very, very good at math. He can count 72, three days and three nights. He doesn't have half a day of this, a half a day of that, and a third of a day of something else, and who cares about anything as long as we get a three-day weekend. That's nonsense. Please know that it's nonsense. This pattern is critical. And knowing the pattern is critical, obviously, to, to all kinds of things in the Bible. But this is the crucifixion week. 
it is exactly the same as it was when Christ was crucified. And it says in Matthew 28, 1, so stop right now. Go to your Bible and you will find Matthew 28, 1 and it says Sabbath. I can guarantee you it does because almost every Bible is wrong. It isn't Sabbath. The word is pluralized. Every Bible I get, I make sure that I put that S in there. On Matthew 28.1, and it says, After these Sabbaths, and again, the word is pearl. Pearl. After these Sabbaths, he resurrected himself, John 2.19. That means that he, it says in John 2.19, that he resurrected himself. All three persons, I'll repeat this, of the triune Godhead resurrected the infinite Christ, and that proves infinity. It takes infinity. Infinity requires infinity. It requires infinity. And that, that's how it works. And he, and he was resurrected on the high Sabbath. So let me star the high Sabbath. This is a high Sabbath. This is a Sabbaton. These are the high Sabbaths. That's a weekly Sabbath. So after these three Sabbaths, he was res- resurrected he resurrected himself, John 2.19, on a high Sabbath. So that's the pattern. Anyway, the plan is, I got, well, let me just say, that. I got four Sabbaths in those eight days. First fruits, Bikurim, being the one he chose to resurrect himself on. So we find Adam in the crucifixion week in these four Sabbaths. And then uh, we move to the ones that are remaining, because there are seven high Sabbaths, aren't they? They're the feast days of the Lord, I have... Again, I have Passover, another bed for uh, uh, first fruits, Shavuot. Uh, then I have uh, trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. So those are your seven, if you wish, uh, trumpets, atonements, uh, and tabernacles. Pentecost just doesn't get it done. I, I hate to use the term Pentecost. Some, some people will say weeks. But the Hebrew, obviously, is Shavuot is uh, very important. So let's ask some easy questions now about Adam and Eve. Romans 5.14. Here we go again. Timothy, 1 Timothy 2.14 and 15. Adam, who is a type of him to come, was not deceived. Adam not deceived. Eve will be saved by the childbearing. It is a definitive article. My pen is about to go down and then I'll switch to a... Uh, easier thing, the child married. And the word she will be saved is preserved, rescued, delivered by the child bearing. So what child bearing do you think that she's going to be saved by? It's pretty obvious, don't you think? What does it mean? Well, we'll have to get into that. But this is the plan. The plan is to go through this and figure out how it applies to Adam. And by now, hopefully everyone who has ever listened to Quizside for any length of time knows the gargantuan nature of Romans 5.14 and 1 Timothy 2.14-15. through 15. If this is the first lecture you've ever heard by me, I have hundreds of these with regard to those two, uh, those two passages on the Internet somewhere. I don't know where. But I'm going to go in a little bit different direction today with it because it's something I started a long time ago. And it is, this is where it would really fit the best, so I'm going to do it here. I'm going to focus on Adam. So let me get rid of this. Let me reestablish the pattern. Sabbath, Sabbaton, Sabbaton, weekly Sabbath, Shabbat, high Sabbath, Sabbaton. That's the pattern of the crucifixion week. The first Adam is a type of Christ. Again, can't repeat that enough. He's not a contrast. He's the first Adam is a type. That means he's a portrait of Christ. That is incredible. 
take a lifetime to make all of the, uh, the connections to Christ. And Eve has contributions to Adam's typology, especially as it applies to the Passover crucifixion seven. This is a seven. I put on eight, but it's really a seven. Seven to here. And this is the eighth day. That fits with the millenniums, right? I have seven millenniums, thousand year periods. The, uh, the restoration comes of all things. The eternity comes. This is eternity. That's the eternal order is the eighth day in scripture. So this is the millennium. This, of course, was the first thousand years. So that's how that works. So the eighth day is included because of that particular characteristic. So that is the Passover crucifixion, seven the week of, and the seven, day, the seven feast days. So to bring some clarification to this, the exercise is the first Adam and the last Adam. So I have Christ is called the last Adam. If you will, the last man. But this is actually... I, I'm, putting them in, in this way because it's more consistent. That's 1 Corinthians uh, 15.45. Oops. A very important scripture. 1 Corinthians uh, 15 is amazing. And so it was written, the first man, Adam, a li- became a living soul, the last Adam, a quickening spirit. Now your Bible is going to have words in italics there. And what do you do when you see words in italics in the Bible? That's right. You cross them out. The first Adam became a living soul. The last Adam, a quickening spirit, a resurrecting spirit. And 1 Corinthians 15, 45 through 49 is where much of the information is given to as to the first Adam and the last Adam with Romans 5, 14, 1 Timothy 2, 14 through 15, actually 13 through 15 being central, of course. Now, we know the last Adam chose the Passover, don't we? This is the day he chose for his crucifixion. This is the sign of Jonah. This is when he chose to be entombed with unleavened bread. This is the sign of Jonah right there. This is a resurrection. Uh, he did that. That's his point. That's what he's trying to beat into us as I try to beat it in as well. And that was that's the day, Passover Wednesday, was the day he would be crucified. He would be attached to wood. He attaches himself to wood, as you know. And he would be lifted up. As the bronze serpent was lifted up. That's the day he picked right here. And this is where Matthew 24, 36 comes into play. But of that day. But of that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels, but my father only. If you've seen lectures that I've done, that is steps Eight and nine of the 12-step Hebrew betrothal system. That's why he says it. He says, if you want to know about a particular event that may happen of that day, no one knows that day. You're not going to know the day and the hour. No one knows. But it's hidden in the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Obviously, he knows he's omniscient and he's infinite. He can't have any idea. He can't be anything but knowing. So he's not telling you that he doesn't know. He's telling you that his father and he are participating in the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. So look up in that ceremony where the father plays a role. And who, who has what role? You'll find that there are father, the father and the father are in there and they're not, play, they're not performed, if you will. They're not, uh, they're not top, typological of just one person of the triune Godhead. So that is not a statement of ignorance. It's, uh, he, do, he can't have any ignorance. It's impossible. Matthew twenty four thirty six says, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. So the obvious question again, what is the day that he's coming? Is it any old day or is it a specific day? Is it one of these eight days when he says, you don't know what day I'm coming? Is he talking about one of these eight? I'm going to come on either one of those. Or maybe is he only talking about one of these four? Because they're Sabbaths. But he chose this day to enter Jerusalem on the donkey, right? And the palms. We call it therefore Fern Sunday, I think. Could be wrong about that. The polite laughter that you hear is appreciated and it's also fake. So is that last part. Anyway, 
Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is, is coming. But on that day, that day. So what is the day? How many days are there to choose from is what I'm asking you, right? Or is the day essentially a feast day? What do you think when he said you won't know the day? Is he talking about one of his feast days or any day? Again, the last Adam, Christ, chose Passover as the crucifixion day. Unleavened bread as the atonement day. First fruits as the resurrection day. Why didn't he hit the platform, you're saying? Thus the obvious first question, uh, first Adam questions. On what day, now we're going to talk about the first Adam, not the second Adam, because the second Adam chooses particular days. And the first Adam is a type of him. So I'm going to try to integrate that and see if I can ask you some questions. On what day did the first Adam become a living soul? Genesis 2-7. Pick a day. Now, I have not added... this on what day did I'm going to give you seven I'll give you eight I'll give you this weekly Sabbath and I'll give you nine I'll give you the Palm Sunday or Fern Sunday so there's your choices you got nine choices which one did Adam become a living soul the breath of life breathed into him the body formed and the breath of life breathed in what is your pick does they last Adam know what day he made the first Adam's body and breathed the breath of life into him? Would he know that day? Absolutely he would. He's omniscient. So, did he put that in the crucifixion week? Is it in the first seven? Now, we know it's in the first the creation seven. We can pick the day. It's the sixth day. But how does it fit in the crucifixion week? Oh, thank you. I'll speed up. On what day was the body of the first Adam made from dust? Again, the sixth creation day. How does that fit? Is the, if he's on the sixth creation day, uh, and you start here, one, two, three, four, five, six, that puts him in entombment, doesn't it? The sign of Jonah. Is that your view? It's incorporated into the feast day of unleavened bread. Remember, all sevens return to the first seven. That's a fundamental. How does this principle work here? Moving along, on what day did the first Adam fall? Did the first Adam die? Did he die on a feast day? Was he created on a feast day? Was the breath of life given to him on a feast day? What day did he die? Did he die on a feast day? So he has two deaths, doesn't he? Actually, he has three. I'll get to that in a minute. But he has the taking of the fruit, and then he has his physical death after 930 years. Well, that's really crazy, 930 years. Why isn't it 1,000 years? We have to have 70. Well, 70 won't work. We've got to have another three and a half. Does anybody understand why I did that? 930 is how long he lived. That's how long he lived from what? His creation or from his expulsion? 70 would give him a nice perfect 1,000. I'm sorry, 33 and a half. Seventy would give him a nice, perfect thousand. The first Adam gets a thousand. The last Adam gets a thousand. But does the first Adam have a thousand and thirty-three? Therefore, the last Adam would have to have a thousand and thirty-three. I mean, they would. I said that. In, I inverted that, but you understand what I'm trying to say. Let me move this again. That keeps humming a little bit. Did you choose Passover for the death of Adam? The first Adam, I asked, when did he die? We know the last Adam died on Passover. So did the first Adam die on Passover? 
What day did God place the first Adam into a deep sleep? Because he places him into a death state, Genesis 2, 21 through 22. He did the same thing with Abraham. Did he do both of those on the same day? Were both of those on a feast day? Genesis 15 is incredibly important in Scripture. Did Abraham follow Adam? And we know that Noah and Adam have this relationship. So were they the, did they have the same kind of symmetry here? Is God able to put all of this together in a nice, wonderful pattern for us? Oh, yeah. It's not arbitrary. Remember, the first Adam is placed into a deep a death state. And out of his pierced side, it's not a rib, and the word doesn't mean rib, it means side, T-S-E-L-A, sala. He extracts material to do what with it? To build the woman, to build the bride of Adam. So out of the side of Adam comes the bride. Did that, what day did that happen on? He's in a deep sleep, and the bride comes from him on what day? Do you choose also Passover for that day? Because out of the pierced side of Christ came living blood and living water. Now, everybody will say, well, just blood and water, and it's some kind of evidence, and blah, blah, blah. His body did not go into corruption. Psalms and Acts is absolutely definitive. There is no possibility that his body went into corruption. So if you have a corruption, a corruption view on the living blood and the living water, if you call it dead blood and dead water, then you're in violation. It can't be, can it? It seems obvious that the bride of Christ and the bride of Adam are, in, are intimately connected. Great big duh. So how are they connected? Did they happen on the same day? And is that day Passover? Have you decided that? More questions. On what day did Eve die? Now we don't know when her physical death occurred post Expulsion, but what day did she eat the fruit? How long did Eve and Satan argue over that fruit? Do you assume it was 15 minutes? Can't be, can it? Did it fall into this pattern of the crucifixion week? What day did she die? Did she also die on Passover? What, that means that Adam would die much, much later, wouldn't he? A year later? How much time between the death of Eve with the fruit and the death of Adam with the fruit? How does it fit in the week? So I'm asking you, how long did it take Eve to reach Adam? How long did Adam wrestle with his decision to fall, being undeceived? Now, that stuff, most of that stuff is on the Internet. And all of these and many, many more are, are the beginning of the study of the typological element of the first Adam, the 930, the 70, the 1000. And again, is it 100 years, 130 years, 133 years? How does it fit? Where's the missing? Where does it, where's that 70 years gone? See, I've done this. I put a hundred. I put a hundred, and then I get to three and a half. Is it this way, or is it ninety plus seventy plus thirty-three, or is it ninety plus nine thirty plus? I'm sorry, nine thirty plus seventy plus thirty-three, or is it nine thirty plus a hundred plus three and a half? Three and a half is very important in scripture, because I have a I have a tribulation that is divided into two three and a half year segments. There's a lot of people that aren't confident that Christ, in fact, had a three and a half year ministry. Well, all you have to do is solve that. And I got a phone call on it recently. And all you have to do to solve that is say, are there any other three and a halfs anywhere? Because it happens to be half a seven. So it seems likely that, there were, that he went through four Passovers and that the, the three and a half is on purpose. Of course it's on purpose. Good grief. You've got to be kidding, right? And all, of the, all these questions are dealing with the typology of Adam. How many... Years did the first Adam have, and how many will the last Adam have, and how does all of this fit together? That's something for you to work on to. The point is, yea, point, thank you, is that Christ is in the feast days, all over the feast days. He's in Passover, he's in unleavened bread, he is in first fruits, and he is all over Shavuot. Uh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. So the first Adam has to also be there, in my view. Okay, did I change pages already and confuse myself? No. 
that leads us to consider the abduction now of the bride, doesn't it? That's what everybody wants to know. All of this is so I can talk to you about the abduction of the bride, which, and, and again, everyone is interested in, and they should be particularly interested in, at this time of a worldwide disease. That is the sign of the beginning of the end of the beginning of the, or the, of the time of the Gentile. So on what day will the abduction of the bride occur? That's the question, right? What day will the abduction of the bride occur? Will it occur on the same day as the building of the bride? Because we've talked about the building of the bride probably occurs on Passover. Because the building of the bride occurs on Passover at the crucifixion, so the building of the bride would occur on Passover with Adam. So on what day will the abduction of the bride occur? Will it occur on the same day as the building of the bride? That's what I'm asking. Do you select Passover for that? Because Passover is what? Wednesday. Note to make the case. Most people do not make the case for Passover. Can a case for... uh, Again, Christ is... The feast days are marinated in Christ. They are... He is in all of them in many different ways. Uh, Christ made sure that he's following the crimson worm. I have to be careful of Jonah and Psalm 22.6. And he wants to be the bronze brazen serpent. We've covered that. That's a picture of his judgment, his holiness capability. Uh, validated and, and, and delineated, if you will. But he wants to make sure he's attached to wood on Passover. He wants to be crucified. He wants to be lifted up. Why does he want to be lifted up? He has a plan, doesn't he? What's his plan? His plan is, is where's his feet? Not really good feet. Might not even be able to see it. Looks like, like a jackknife or maybe a moth. Trust me, their feet. I get paid for this. Okay. Where's his feet? I'll help you. They're not on the ground. Not on the ground. At the crucifixion. Now, why did he want to do that? Christ was attached to wood. His feet are not touching the earth. Christ is where? In the air. Isn't that interesting? Of the differences between the abduction of the bride and the return for the wife, none is more specific than 1 Thessalonians 4.17. And so let's read that. I'll go fast, I promise. I have 90 minutes worth of material here. Um, I'm trying to squeeze it down into less than 60 minutes, which is impossible, but I'm trying. Okay. For the Lord himself, this is verse, uh, let's see, make sure, in verses 16 and 17 of 1 Thessalonians 4. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, in the air, not on the ground, in the clouds, to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore comfort one another with these words. Zechariah 14.4 And in that day What day is this? He's going to do something on a day. In that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. So there is a day where he's not on the, where he's in the air, and there is a day where he is on the Mount of Olives. I want to know that day. Let me say this. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations, and he, as he fights in the day of battle. What day is that? And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two, just like the veil. So all of that's there. So the, for the bride, which is the pierced side and the living blood and the living water, his feet is in the air. 
And it says in Thessalonians that when he comes for the bride, he's in the air. And only the bride will see him, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. For the wife, his feet are on the Mount of Olives, and everyone sees him. Every eye will see him, Revelation 1, 7. It's one of the great beholds in Revelation. And so add that to all, all of this. So is the abduction on April the 8th? Because he's in the air. Just as he will be when he comes. So that means how many days we got? Counting today, Hebrew counting, reckoning, maybe. Get a cow, use your phones. But if you've concluded that it's on Passover, then I ask you now to move over to the right side of the auditorium. And if you have a different opinion than your spouse, that's all the more entertaining and amusing for the teacher. No one's here. I'm just pretending like I have a crowd. I don't. Okay, let's move to consider Yom Kippur. Let's consider atonement. The conventional wisdom, as you know, is that Passover was his crucifixion. Unleavened bread was his entombment. First fruits was his uh, resurrection. And it can be nothing else but those. There can't be two things on one day. There can't be three things on one day. It's only one thing on every day. And that means the Shavuot... Uh, it is also a sign because that is the the dissension, if you will, the fire of Exodus. I'll explain that in a minute, where the Holy Spirit comes and we have fire. And that's that's been fulfilled, everyone thinks. So it's all done. And all that remains is that uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and Sukkot are not fulfilled. And, and so everybody wants to assign things. They say, let's put the trumpets and let's make that the rapture. Because there's a trumpet in the rapture. Let's make the atonement. We'll call that the tribulation. The entirety of the tribulation. The seven years. Though we have ten days of awe in Yom Kippur. And then we'll have the tabernacles. That'll be the thousand year messianic reign. But we have seven days in tabernacle. Now that could be the seventh day. Which is a thousand year millennium. But that's, that's how it is done. That's the convention of wisdom. But Yom Kippur, if it's the tribulation, that is where the great trump is blown. The great trump is blown in, during Yom Kippur. There's three trumps. The Shofar Haggadah. And the great trump is blown, Matthew 24, 13, at the gathering of the elect, the chosen ones. Now, is that the bride, or is that the wife, or is it both? And, and there's, and there's uh, some interpret the, the keeping of, the, of Philadelphia from, from the hour of trial upon the whole world. The tribulation is a worldwide event again. Notice that trend. And the Church of Philadelphia is kept because she is faithful to the deity of Christ. And she is kept from the hour of trial. Revelation 3.10. And many insist that the tribulation is broken in two pieces. And they are absolutely right about that. But they say the first part of the tribulation isn't really that bad. It's, it's bad. And if you read Revelation, it looks pretty bad to me. But that's not bad. That's okay. Second, boy, the second half, that is the real tribulation. we got a kind of a tribulation. we got an incredible tribulation. And the third woe is the seventh trumpet. And Satan is cast down. And uh, things are going to get really hot there. And, this, and they say that again, Yom Kippur is referencing the second three and a half years. And they will tell you that the bride then is abducted immediately prior to the second three and a half years. So if you're looking at the tribulation, they're saying right here is where the bride's abducted. That's a mid-tribulational position. Uh, also, you got Joel 2.15 and 16. Blow the trumpet in Zion, gather the people. Well, which trumpet is that? Let the bridegroom go out of his chamber and the bride from her dressing room. Okay, there's some implications there. And if, if, the, if Yom Kippur is uh, the abduction of the bride... And it's only the second half of the tribulation. In other words, if I can see the hypothesis, which obviously I, I, I'm 
not adhering to it, then that means the trumpets has to be the first half. So this would this would be trumpets, and this would be Yom Kippur. If that makes any sense. So in other words, trumpets the first half of the tribulation, Yom Kippur is the second half of the tribulation. The gathering is right here. And there is, they'll make a very strong case. Don't think they can't. They can. And, and the first six trumpets are within the first half. Okay. Again, there are three trumps. There's the first trump, the last trump, and the great trump. Three trumps in Judaism. The first trump is blown on Shavuot. Or what we would call Pentecost. So is Shavuot. On the, on the list, could it be the day that he chooses? Does he double up on anything? That's what I'm asking. Can he double up? Would he double up? Does he bring the holy? Does he bring the fire and he also resurrects? Because the first trump is on Shavuot. The last trump is on Rosh Hashanah trumpets. So I have a trump here and a trump here. The third trump is in the great trump is in Yom Kippur. So you can see you got three trumps to pick from. Pick your trump. It's not a political question. The first and second trumps are the horns of the ram caught in the thicket. Genesis 22:13. Abraham catches a ram in the thicket when he's with Isaac. And that ram, of course, is a picture of Christ. Genesis 15. And so that's the shofar. And the shofar is blown to proclaim the resurrection of the dead. Okay, that's good news. So when is the shafar blown? To resurrect the dead. So you can see how the abduction of the bride is thought to be on trumpets. It's the first, the, the shofar is blown on the feast day of trumpets. 1 Corinthians 15:52. the resurrection of the dead will occur on the last trump. Rosh Hashanah. So 1 Corinthians 15:52 is an abduction of the bride verse. So again, more choices to deal with. And I might have said that in a confusing way. I'll clean it up later. Israel crossed over the Red Sea, saved out of judgment on first fruits. Is that a picture of Israel being saved in the tribulation? Or is that a picture of the bride being saved out of judgment? Church of Philadelphia. Christ resurrected himself, obviously, on first fruit, so it's a resurrected day. And there's no question the bride is resurrected, right? The dead will rise first. Does the bride rise on first fruits? Would that be appropriate to resurrect the bride? Most of the bride is probably dead the last 2,000 years. Maybe not. Mathematics being what they're like, we might have more Christians alive today than have been alive for 2,000 years. Very easily. Is the bride resurrected on first fruit? First fruits. Noah's ark goes to rest on first fruits. So the strong case can be made for first fruits. That's well. This is the eighth, ninth, tenth, eleventh, twelfth. We got two shots at it. I mean, that's like having two lottery tickets, except you only got nine choices. So we got two tickets. We have worldwide uh, flood. I'm sorry, worldwide. Disease, a pandemic means worldwide. We've seen a worldwide war. We've got the nation of Israel. We have Jerusalem. We have the Balfour Declaration. We have the emancipation of the Jews on the Jubilees. Everything that I covered in, I think, uh, lecture 94. I'm not positive about that. Because I'm, I forget now. I'm forgetful. Israel eats of the fruits of the promise on Bikiram, first fruits. The saints rose on first fruits, Matthew 27:51 through 53. The graves were open, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Is that the bride or the wife? A great earthquake tore the veil of the temple. A worldwide earthquake tore the veil of the of the temple. Now we have Shavuot. The counting, the seven times seven plus one, the 50, the jubilee, the giving of the Torah on Shavuot. It's a marriage. That's where the betrothal contract is. That's the Hebrew betrothal ceremony. Comes out of the feast day of Shavuot. 
There's two witnesses are required in Revelation 11. There's two witnesses required in the marriage contract. There's 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the fire came, Acts 2, 1 through 11. The, the first trump sounded, Exodus 19, 19. The fire is a physical manifestation of the voice of God. That's why I want to do resonance as Exodus 20:18. In other words, when he speak, spoke, Israel saw it as fire. We see fire at Acts 2. And that fire went, that voice went throughout the whole world. It was a worldwide event. Finally, last two questions. Everybody loves finally. Everybody. Make him stop. Was there a light in the ark, Noah's ark? Or was it dark in there? I mean, no windows. Really? Was there a light in there? Yes, you're absolutely right. Of course there was a light in there, John 8, 12, because Christ shut the door. Genesis 7, 16, and he is the light. They had lots of light. Again, just make the point. He shut the door. The light of life was inside the ark of Noah, and the light of, and, he, and he was the light of the ark. There was no sunlight during the flood. We had volcanic eruptions. We had all this... Incredible explosive conditions. So the sun would have been completely blocked out. And that tells you Revelation 22.5 is now here. Because he gets rid of the sun. Why does he get rid of the sun? We all like the sun. He gets rid of it. He, the sun represents him. He doesn't want you to think the sun is anything special. He wants you to know where the light comes from. So every time you see light, you know that's him. You live in, you are absolutely soaked in the light of Christ in the eternal order. Eighth day. The eighth millennium. It's not a millennium. So what are these ten days of Yom Kippur and the seven days of tabernacle? Next week, as long as we can function, and there is no... Uh, contamination that we can't uh, function in. in. In other words, if there's a municipal or a state uh, requirement that we don't do it, uh, then we won't. But if we can do it, it will be the weirdest first fruits lecture of my so-called career. And I've done some strange, odd lectures on first fruits. But I promise you, this one is going to be completely crazy with respect to the tradition, as you should now come to expect. Will the musicians come forward? Of course not. <laughs>